Financial residency podcasts are brought to you this week by weatherbyhealthcare.com. Just as the right advice helps you thrive financially, the right support team allows you to excel professionally. Weatherby Healthcare's locums experts will match you with the best jobs, prepare you for success, and provide 24-7 support. The bottom line is that working locums with Weatherby helps you earn more money and take better control of your career. If that sounds like music to your ears, head over to weatherbyhealthcare.com payday to get started. Financial Residency is proud to bring you Grand Rounds with Dr. Tammy. Each week, Tammy Krauss explores a new topic related to achieving financial independence by building and protecting your wealth. She invites guests who are experts in their fields who will share honest and valuable advice on a variety of topics. If you have an idea for a podcast, please email Tammy, that's T-A-M-M-Y, at financialresidency.com. Now grab your front row seat to this week's Grand Rounds. Hi, and welcome back to Grand Rounds with Dr. Tammy. Financial residency is dedicated to bringing you information about living your best physician life while working towards financial independence. Today, I want to talk a little bit about protecting that life and estate that you're building. I have the pleasure of inviting Ike Devji. He's an attorney who's been working with affluent individuals across the U.S. to protect personal assets. He's worked with thousands of physicians, including nearly a dozen in his own family, to provide risk management and wealth preservation planning. And he's also been a contributing author to three books and published over 300 articles on the topic throughout the last decade. And if you're not familiar, he's also going to be speaking at the upcoming White Coat Investor Conference in March. So welcome to the show, Ike. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for sharing your time with me. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited that you agreed to come on the show and kind of share some of this information with us. I guess let's just start at the top, start with the basics. What is asset protection and how does that differ from estate planning? That's a great question. Asset protection means different things to different people, and lots of people are using that phrase right now. Life insurance and annuity salespeople are using that phrase. Attorneys are using that phrase. P&C agents, property and casualty insurance agents are using that phrase. But for our discussion purposes, the definition is pretty broad. It means taking proactive steps to manage risks and make sure that we get to keep our assets, whatever those assets are, and making those assets legally distinct from our personal and professional liability. That encompasses legal tools, it encompasses insurance planning, it encompasses risk management. So we're going to talk about all of those things in the scope of our discussion. That sounds wonderful. How it differs from estate planning is pretty simple. Estate planning is primarily about what happens to your assets after you die and what the estate tax treatment of those assets is. Will you face an estate tax or not? Those are the two big things that most estate planners are are focusing on. Asset protection certainly includes estate planning, but I like those who are listening to think of asset protection as life planning as opposed to estate planning as death planning. How do we make sure that you get to keep and enjoy these assets while you're alive? Good deal. And it sounds like you work with clients across the nation. You're not just located in one state. Is that correct? That's correct. Because of the specialized nature of what I and my partners do, 
we do have folks seek us out from all over the country and we have clients in all 50 states and from about 14 foreign countries. And those folks obviously have U.S. assets that they're usually concerned about. Okay. Well, when should a doctor start thinking about this? You know, right away. No matter what <laughs> you're at, whether it is your first day out of residency or your last year in practice, somewhere on that scale, <laughs> uh, there are always things that people should be doing. So baby doctors, obviously, we want to concentrate on the basics. We want to make sure that they have high levels of disability insurance in place. We want to make sure that they have uh, significant amounts of personal liability insurance in place. Believe it or not, one of the most common mistakes that people make is failing to have a, an umbrella policy on their home and their cars for a couple of million dollars. And I turn away several people a month who call me after a car accident. And these are by any standards or by most standards, these are rich people, successful people who call me and they are terrified that they're going to lose everything because they mm. just found out the accident they were in is going to exceed the limits of their coverage. So those foundational you know, building blocks of having disability insurance, having liability insurance, having an estate plan, that's basic having maybe some life insurance if you have folks who are relying on you like a spouse or children, or even in some cases, if you have parents that have personally guaranteed your medical school, that's a great reason. Sometimes, you know, a single young person will say to me, well, I don't need life insurance because I don't have a spouse or a child or somebody else depending on me. And I'll say, okay, great. Is there anybody who put their name on the line for you? And do you need to protect them? So those are the things that we might look at for somebody at the beginning of their career, someone who has some small amount of savings, their first significant amount of savings, whatever that is, their first fifty, seventy-five, hundred thousand dollars something like that outside retirement plans. Well, then we might start looking at putting a holding company in place to put that money, those savings, those investment accounts into Somebody a little older than that will typically have some investment property. Maybe they'll buy a rental house. Somebody beyond that will have a significant amount of money in the bank and maybe a large amount of home equity, and they'll need different tools. So the my point is, making a short story long, I, I guess, <laughs> there are always things that you should do, and what those are depends on your age, income, and net worth level. And so the planning should be appropriate for you. But there is nobody who is too poor or too rich to think about this. Does that make sense the way I'm saying that? It really does. And I mean, I've said this over and over. We spend all of our 20s and part of our 30s being trained on medicine, but no one ever takes the time to teach us the financial side of things. So it's really nice to have someone like you that probably spent your 20s and early 30s learning the financial side, protecting us. Yes. we And, you know, when we share this information, what people who are hearing this are getting is the perfect 2020 hindsight of every <laughs> client that I've talked to, every mistake I've seen for the last 20 years. That's what we're warning you about. So these are real stories. These are real exposures. And we see that sometimes things that are very basic get overlooked because we're worried about big catastrophes like that, you know, career ending med mal claim. Yeah. And we overlook something like the car we drive every day. Right. So that's what we, when I'm talking, when I'm teaching CME, I refer to that as risk myopia, right? Don't just focus 
on your medical risk, there are many other things that, that we need to be aware of and have an eye on. True. So it sounds like insurance plays a big part in asset protection. Are there other forms of insurance that you typically recommend or are those kind of the big ones? No, I mean, insurance is a vital layer of protection and asset protection. And I will tell you that dollar for dollar, it is some of the most cost-effective and important asset protection planning you can have is insurance. But many people think of insurance as either a be-all, end-all, or they don't think of it at all, right? So some people will say, I'm not worried about anything. I have that umbrella policy that Ike was talking about. Well, great. If something happens with your car or if somebody is injured with your home, we know that hopefully that umbrella policy will cover that. But it's not going to cover any of the other risks in your life, right? If, so, for instance, if you're a practice owner, it's not going to protect you against a med mal suit or an employment lawsuit, which is even more common in a physician-owned practice than a medical malpractice suit. You're more likely to be sued by an employee than by a patient. Huh. Right. So so when we talk about insurance, that means all the right kinds of insurance and it means all the right amounts of insurance. So for those who are listening, who either own a practice or aspire to own a practice of their own someday, they need to think about details like employee lawsuit insurance, data breach and cyber liability insurance, rack audit insurance in case there's a Medicare, Medicaid payer audit, DNO insurance, which stands for directors and officers insurance. So if you own a medical practice, you are, whether you bear that title or not, the CEO, the president, the CMO, right? You have all of these managerial roles. And so there is special insurance in place for what we can refer to as managerial malpractice, right? There is special insurance in place for premises liability, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got great, most doctors in America carry that 1 million, 3 million per occurrence on their med mal policy. But if I come to your practice and fall down and trip in the parking lot and break my knee, um, you better have the right kind of insurance for that as well, right? So what we find in many cases is that a lot of docs are wearing the emperor's new clothes where we ask them about those various specialty commercial insurance coverages that I just rattled off at you. And I'll say, hey, these are things that should be on your list. And they'll say, oh, I checked, we have those. And I'll say, great. Do you know how much coverage you have in each of those areas? Do you have, for instance, a million dollars of coverage in each of those areas? Or do you have a $50,000 rider, which isn't going to be sufficient to cover any of those in the event of a real claim, right? So it's not just having the insurance, it's having the right policy, and it's having the right policy at the right amount. And there are lots of times where we see that somebody believes they are protected from those things, but doesn't understand that the coverage they have is too low or that it shares the limits of their med mal policy. So if you have an employment law claim that's a that is handled by a rider on your med mal insurance, well, that decreases the amount of med mal coverage you have available. Really? Right? So it is important that folks work with very highly qualified insurance advisors who are experienced in commercial insurance to get those things in place. But yes, that does mean a combination of health insurance, life insurance, disability insurance, uh, liability insurance, and then this commercial insurance coverage. Yes. So sometimes, you know, uh, a practice owner might have six different policies, 
but that is the cushion between them and the street and all of the bad things out there that could happen. Wow. Now, beyond an accident that happens in the parking lot or a medical malpractice case, are there other types of risk factors that you try to protect against when you're doing this type of planning with a physician? Sure. And I'm glad you brought that up. I, mean, we, I referred earlier to risk myopia, right? Mm-hmm. But what I mean by that is doctors are only worried about med mal claims, or at least mostly worried about sure. med mal claims. My clients who own construction companies are worried about construction defect claims. My clients who own trucking companies are worried about car accidents, right? So everybody is focused on the big flashing red light on their dashboard, on their desk. But what we tell people is you need to slow down, take a step back and think of yourself holistically as a three-dimensional person with lots of risks. So I have a list of risk factors that I'll share with you in case you want to post it with, with our conversation. Okay. But, you know, I asked, I have this list of common risk factors and it's by no means complete, but it's nothing exotic. So I start asking people, do you own a home? Do you drive a car? Do you have kids? Do your kids drive your cars? Do you have a licensed profession for which you have professional liability, like you folks do and like I do as an attorney? Are you an investor? Do you own liability-producing assets, like a rental home or a duplex or a little office building? You know, that is a great asset. It also creates significant liability. Um, Are you and a couple of your physician friends co-investors in a business project like what's very common, what doctors love, which makes sense because they know the business and have a comfort level. Maybe it's a lab, maybe it's a ASC, maybe you're a partner in a surgical center, right? Many physicians partner in those kinds of businesses. Maybe it's an imaging center. Those things produce internal liability in disputes among and between partners. Or are you the person who said, hey, I want to build a surgical center and I'm going to go out and solicit some of my buddies and my friends at the hospital and we're going to own this thing together, have you made legal and financial representations that other people rely on? Do you serve on a board? Are you, the, are you a board member, officer, director of a public or private company? Or do you serve on the board of a religious or financial institution like a bank or even at your hospital, right? That board membership carries some significant liability as well. And those board membership positions are supposed to be insured and often aren't, Mm -hmm. right? So I'm rattling off a bunch of different things at you that are really not all that unusual or exotic that people do every day, but they don't think of those with the same apprehension and risk management frame of view that they think about medical malpractice, especially when we're talking to doctors. And unfortunately, you're much more likely to be in a car accident than you are to be sued by a patient. That being said, we know that most doctors are going to be sued about twice in their practice life for medical malpractice. And we even know which doctors are the highest risk, which states are the highest risk. In fact, I've written a whole series of articles that breaks all that down in physician's practice. So, you know, yes, it's a, it is important that when we are looking at asset protection planning, that we are planning for as many of the risks that we can identify as possible. And even then we know that we're not going to get them all. You're kind of making me scared to walk outside my door tonight. (laughs) That's not my intent, certainly. I, I wish that was the first time I've heard that. 
especially <laughs> when I teach CME and I rattle off and go through scenarios or tell some of the real stories of things that we actually deal with every day, because I'm the first guy that gets called, right? When something sure. bad happens, who do you call? You call your lawyer, you call me before you call your spouse in many cases. You know, so I hear that a lot, but what we want to do together is not scare people. We want to inform people and we want to show them how to manage these risks so that they don't have to be scared. What are some of the common mistakes that people make when they're trying to do this? Well, the most common mistake that most people, most Americans, most people who are successful with money, including physicians make, is doing nothing. I turn away several people a month who call me after something bad has happened. And we can't insure against it, right? You can't insure against the accident you, after it happens. Just had, yeah. You can't insure your house after it's burnt down. So that's part of the problem is that people take their wealth and success for granted and aren't actively thinking about defending it in the same way they think about growing it or avoiding taxes in a legal way or whatever else, the other financial things that, that you talk about, we don't think about this the same way. So the biggest mistake is doing nothing. I think that's, that is the most common thing. And unfortunately, the people who call us after the fact, if we do that planning for them, which we don't, but if we did, that planning would be fraud. So there are things that are perfectly legal for you to do before a claim that are overtly fraudulent after a claim. The second most common mistake people make, I think, is thinking they're not rich enough, right? So they think, well, asset protection planning is only for people worth five or $10 million or more. And of course, those people need it and should do it. But you will never get to that five or $10 million <laughs> worth if you have significant setbacks and losses along the way. So part of what we want to get people to do is train them to think about securing whatever level of success they have as it comes. So when you have a bunch of equity in your home that's not protected by homestead in your state, let's put a wrapper around your house to make sure that equity is protected. When you have some money in the bank, let's make sure that we have a wrapper around that to make sure that whatever that savings or investment account looks like in whatever form it is, that it is legally distinct from you, the person, you, the parent, you, the doctor, you, the investor, right? Let's make sure it's separate from that. If you have rental properties, let's make sure that the inc that those properties are not held in your own name or in the name of your estate plan, that they're held the, in a, the right way and that the income stream that comes out of them is properly protected. So we talked about this earlier. The question you asked was when when should doctors start thinking about this? Mm -hmm. And my answer is day one. So that's the second mistake. Another very common mistake we see is people relying on traditional estate planning. And in particular, a tool that is referred to as a revocable living trust or family trust is a great tool. It is a great estate planning tool. It is the only one of the only baseline estate planning tools that I use. I think it's much more complete and effective than a mere will, but it's that tool is a saw, it's not a hammer, right? So different tools have different purposes. And so a revocable living trust does not provide any creditor protection to the assets in it because it's revocable. But many times people talk to me and say, hey, I think I've got all this covered. My two rental homes, the house I live in, my investment accounts are all in my trust. And I'll say, are you referring to your family revocable trust, your estate plan? And they nod very proudly and say, yes. 
And I have to tell them that, great, you've got a good death plan, but that's not a good life plan. So that is another common thing. Another common mistake that we see is what I call too many eggs in one basket. And that is where maybe we have a good tool like an LLC, but we've used it for the wrong purpose or we have too many assets in it. So LLC, great tool to put a business in, great tool to put a rental property in, terrible tool to put the house you live in in the home you personally occupy. And sometimes we see too many assets combined. So for instance, if you have a rental home that's in an LLC, and in the same LLC, you have an investment account with a bunch of cash. If somebody gets hurt in the rental home, the LLC's other assets are available for that claim, right? Oh, okay. So we don't want to mix assets that shouldn't be mixed. So that's a, so the euphemism there is, you know, too many eggs in one basket. Another one that I love, and I'll stop here because the list is long and, <laughs> you know, I can share the list with you if you want to share it with your listener, sure. is this is one that I hear, especially from doctors, which is, and this is usually male doctors. So guys, listen up. I hear, I'm not worried about asset protection because I don't own anything. My wife owns everything. Oh, yeah. They put, physicians often will put assets in the name of a spouse or another relative with the impression that, hey, that person is lower risk than me. And therefore, this is good asset protection. And that fails for a couple of reasons. And I'll be quick and go through a couple of those real quick. And I think this will make sense. Number one merely titling assets in somebody else's name is not effective to disassociate yourself from ownership, especially if you live in a community property state. Where I am in Arizona, California, many other states are community property states. Even in states that are not community property states, merely saying that this account we opened in this person's name and I took the money that I earned and put it in that account, therefore you can't touch it, that's not going to work. You are going to have additional paperwork like a postnuptial agreement or a property transmutation agreement that says legally, officially, I have no tie to this money. It's not mine anymore. Even if you do that, well, what have we done? If you get divorced, whatever you put in that other person's name is really their separate property. So when we divide up the rest of the marital estate, if you get divorced, the 30% of the assets that you quote unquote hid in your spouse's name, well, that's not part of the calculation. So they're going to get that plus... (laughs) half of everything else. Also, we have simply exchanged that person's liability for yours. So if that person gets sued, goes bankrupt, gets in a car accident, whatever, that's really their money. Oh, and by the way, if they die, they can leave that to anyone they want. And that may not be you or your children and the rest of your family. So it's a poor substitute for many reasons to actual planning, but it's something people commonly do because I guess outside the context of the law and these issues I brought up, it kind of makes sense, right? It's not mine. You can't touch it. And that is sort of the theory that we talk about when we take legal assets out of your name and put them into the name of an entity, like a a partnership or a trust or an LLC. We're saying that those are separate from you and people equate gifting to relatives or having relatives hold assets in their names. It could be, oh, I own a hotel with my brother. 
great. Let me see the LLC paperwork that shows you own half of it. Oh, no, we don't have that paperwork. He just holds it for me. Well, if he dies or goes bankrupt or gets sued, your membership, your ownership interest is nowhere, is, is doesn't exist legally. It's a fiction that you two imagine between you. And it's a bad place to be for a variety of reasons. So those are just some of the common mistakes that we spot. I have a, an article I've written where we talk about 10 or 11 total and that are the ones that we see every day. That sounds riskier than waiting for that med malpractice case to come along. (laughs) I think divorce is probably much more likely in the physician world than the med malpractice case. Yeah. And that is another thing that we protect people from. We ask our, you know, if you're single and you do, we ask if I have a client that's single, especially a physician, right? It's a joke culturally, culturally, right? We talk about in every movie you see the grandma or the mother who's looking for an eligible doctor, right? (laughs) Exactly. For her her child or grandchild. So yes, I mean, doctors make a good living, some of them a phenomenally good living. And we do want to make sure that folks who are entering a marriage have prenuptial planning and other things in place. Good deal. You know, you talked about starting out on day one with a physician that, you know, doesn't have a lot of assets saved. Is working with someone like you affordable at that stage in their life? Is this something they can afford? I mean, I know you can't afford not to do it, but can you actually afford to come up with the money to do it? Yeah, I think so. Now, obviously I have a bias because this is what I do for a living. Sure. But there are things that we do and prescribe that make sense at a specific level of wealth, right? So sometimes somebody will come to me because they're referred by a senior physician in their practice who's been around the block and is older and has more wealth or a parent who is financially sophisticated. Maybe that parent's also a physician or it is, however they end up with us. If we're talking to somebody early in their career, like I said, we talk about the basics and get them to do and buy the things they need, like disability insurance and then big umbrella policy for a couple million minimum and those things. And those don't really involve a lawyer at all except having the lawyer identify their exposures in the course of that consult, right? Because my process is a lot like going to the doctor. I have a fact finder, which is my diagnostic tool. I make people answer a bunch of questions about all these issues that we're talking about. Kids, cars, employees, insurance policies, how much you make, what you do, what else you're invested in. So we ask those nosy questions and allows us to identify what risks you have and then prescribe a specific course of treatment. And that course of treatment may not involve me beyond that on that first day, other than my me saying, hey, you need to get these basics in place. Or maybe you need these three kinds of insurance. I don't sell insurance. I'm an attorney. But you know, maybe we can refer you to somebody we trust who does. Or maybe you can go back to your own person and talk about that. You know, and then the opening tools that people typically need, the most ground level tools, are typically an estate plan, which is a relatively affordable thing. And then the next most common thing that we'd probably start with is some kind of a holding company, like a limited partnership. Once that person has their first 50 or 75 or $100,000 in savings, that's where we start looking at legal tools beyond an estate plan that somebody might need in most cases. The important thing is to work with somebody who's going to prescribe what is appropriate for you with who you are and what you're worth today. That makes sense. 
once you've established that initial plan at whatever stage along the career that you are, how often should you revisit that plan and see if you need to make any adjustments? Well, we touch base with clients a minimum of once a year as part of a relationship in different firms and different people do this differently. But what we do is we do an annual review every year. And during that annual review, we hopefully discover all the things that you were supposed to tell us as they happened, but never did. Right. So we asked, did you buy anything? Did you sell anything? Did you get a bunch of money? Did you get a big bonus? Did you get an inheritance? Did you invest in a surgical center? Did you buy your first rental house? Right. So we ask questions. We also encourage people to check with us before they do those things so we can tell you the right, smart, safe way to do it. So once is again from my one of my CME lectures, this is an example I've used for years. I say, don't call me and say, hey, Ike, I just invested a bunch of money in a commercial pad over by the football stadium with three of my doctor buddies. What do you think? Doesn't matter what I think. You already did it. Too late. (laughs) You already signed a personal guarantee or you already put in some kind of holding structure together that may have not been the right one. You didn't have the operating agreement that you should have had before you went into this with your partners, right? So we encourage people to check with us, not for permission, certainly, That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is, tell us what you're doing before you do it, and we'll give you some pointers on the safest way to do it. So I think an annual review is a good idea that may be overkill in some cases if nothing has really changed. But I think at least an annual review with your planner is probably a good idea. And it doesn't have to be a big, intimidating, time-consuming, you know, drudgery for the client. It can be something as simple as a 30-minute phone call. Hey, tell me what happened last year. What'd you make? What'd you buy? What'd you sell? You know, what's different? What's changing? Once we have that information in hand, we can give good advice and keep people safe and keep them out of trouble in the first place, which is really if you know the best job I do is not protecting you if you get sued. Obviously, that's part of the planning. But the even better thing is to keep you out of trouble in the first place. Good deal. Everywhere you turn, you know, news is talking about inflation and the recession that's coming. Does going into a recession change the way that you advise people to make their plans? Absolutely. Recessions magnify all the risks that we've talked about, right? So we find, for instance, that during recessions, employment lawsuits go up because people are afraid of losing their job or their spouse has lost a job or they're, you know, they're worried about money or they have money problems, right? So people will often do and say things and make claims that they might not ordinarily have made out of fear and desperation and because of economic pressure. That means everything from medical malpractice claims to employment lawsuits. We see that things like internal fraud, theft, and embezzlement spike when times are tough, right? People are looking for ways to supplement their income and not of the not all of those are legal or ethical. <laughs> we see that property crimes go up. It's more important to make sure that the physical security of your home and your medical practice is well managed, right? That you have alarms and lights and insurance and all of those things. You know, we see identity theft goes up, right? We see all of these different issues that are pressures that are put upon you at a time where you may also be facing your own financial pressure, right? 
as a physician, as a practice owner, maybe you're a physician in a field that has a lot of cash pay patients that are getting discretionary treatment, right? So we saw, we've seen this before with those who specialize in cosmetic procedures, right? They're on the kind of the front end of where that discretionary income disappears. A lot of the services that you're providing are tougher to sell. It doesn't matter what market you're in. So it's important that people think defensively and even more so about insurance, about maintaining their position in the market, about maintaining a cash reserve, about spending within your means. You know, that's one of the big things that we, when I've written a couple of pieces on recession survival, and we talk about what are the traits of people who survived the recession versus people who get wiped out. And what we see is that people who are willing and able to adjust their lifestyle and overhead to their current financial reality are the ones who make it. But on the other hand, if you are leveraged to the hilt, if you are living on credit, if you have a mortgage that you can barely afford and you know payments on a couple of luxury cars and other things, it is much harder for that person if they are at the edge of their income. And just and just and are consuming most of it now to tone that down or turn it down. It's also important that how you're invested and what you're invested in, and I'm not a financial advisor and I certainly don't give financial advice, but we see that people who had illiquid assets had a much harder time than people who had liquid assets that they could spend and supplement their income with or cover an emergency with. So yes, the tactical thinking is different. And there are things that we look out for and we say, hey, all of that insurance stuff that we warned you about and all that specialty insurance, that's even more important in a recession than it was last year. Having that umbrella in place, having the operating agreements in place, having life insurance in place on yourself and your spouse, if you're both breadwinners and the family's dependent on two sources of income is very important. And as I said, living well within your means as opposed to living at the edge of your means, certainly has been the most glaringly obvious factor. And I'm talking about some of the richest people in the country who are my clients. My clients are from the top 5% to the top 1% of wealth in the country. And a lot of those people sure don't feel rich. They work long hours. They may own a practice. They may work at a hospital. They have to stop on the way home and pick up dog food and get the kids from soccer practice, just like everybody else. There's no chauffeur-driven limo coming for most of these people. But when you show them that, hey, you make this much money, and that puts you in the top 5% of wealth in the country, whether you realize it or not, that also tells you what your target value is. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I bet a lot of physicians don't realize that. Working people don't feel rich because they get up every day and do all the normal American things. And they don't realize on a relative level to the rest of the country, how successful they actually are. Well, if anybody wanted to get in touch with you and maybe start this process or see if what they've done in the past is sufficient, how would they get in touch with you, Ike? I think the easiest way is probably through my website, which is proassetprotection.com, P-R-O, assetprotection.com. That website has obviously our contact information about all the things that we've talked about in great detail. And I think that it's a good educational resource for anyone who's interested in this topic to see some of the things that we worry about and to 
provide some, you know, start here type guidance. What are things you should know if you're thinking about this, so on and so forth. We've got all that on there in plain English, and we've done it in a way where you don't have to sign up and get into any kind of a click funnel or anything else. The information's there. You don't have to give me any information of yours to get the information, to read the articles. It's all there for you. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you coming on the show today. You've just been a wealth of information. It's my pleasure. I was glad to spend some time with you and I hope we helped somebody today. Absolutely. And I'll just remind everyone, you're going to be at the White Coat Investor Seminar in March. And did you say that was Scottsdale? Is that right? Yes, it'll be in Scottsdale, Arizona. Oh, good. Which is a nice place to be in the winter. You can sit poolside with your margarita while you learn how to get rich. (laughs) Love it. (laughs) Well, thanks again. And thanks to all of the listeners for tuning in to this week's edition of Grand Rounds. If you're ready to start boosting your earning power with locums, head over to weatherbyhealthcare.com slash payday to learn more.